26, verses 47 through 56. Matthew 26, 47 to 56. Also find it at the top of your sermon outlines. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. May God bless this reading of his word, and let's pray one more time. Father in heaven, oh, as Mike Lee loves saying, you are awesome, oh God. As we see your love for us in what you subjected your son through, Lord Jesus, your grace is amazing that you would subject yourself through this for us. And Holy Spirit, you are amazing that you have made such truth come alive in us so that the eyes of our heart do see. And we pray for everyone who has eyes to see that they see. And we pray for those who cannot that you give them eyes that see, ears that hear, and hearts that understand that Jesus Christ saves. Be with me now and help me, for I'm helpless without you, to preach this message of your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come to this dreadful night, and it's a terrible night. After all the things that came and the wonderful things, a high priestly prayer, a last supper, a washing of feet, and now we come to this night, which feels like this march to hell, this horrible time where we think that God, where is God in this? And yet, I studied this passage and poured over it. Just such things came out because such things that are relevant for us today, as, as John was saying, what are the things that we're dealing with in the world today? We're dealing with just a virus that we have to wear masks with and people still getting sick, people still dying. Thankfully, not as many, but still it's happening. We're dealing with political turmoil and unrest in our country with racial injustice and with uh, just overseas. I mean, the Russians. Anyone keeping track of the Russians nowadays? I am. They just did this show of force, three submarines plowing through the Arctic, uh, Arctic ice. Jerks! All right, so nothing, just, anyway. And then the Chinese, as just John just prayed about as well. All right, so, and, you know, 
I mean, in my life, I can say I love the Chinese, right? So um, <laughs> for, <laughs> for those of you who don't get the joke, I'm married to a Chinese girl, not a Korean girl. So, um, so but what I hate me is some Chinese communists, all right? You know, they're going to they're gonna rip the audio on this YouTube, and my future visas to China is going to be revoked because of that, because of Google. I hate you, Google. So, but still, you know, just the suffering that's happening in the church and going on and on, all these things. And then in our own lives, in our congregation, we have people who are in pain, who are struggling, those who have died, those who are dying. Can't we understand times where it feels that Nothing's in control. Nothing that we want to be in control is in control. And yet in this passage, in the least likely of places, we see the truth that God is in control. And so the three points of today's message are Judas betrays, but your Jesus is not surprised. The mob arrests, but your Jesus is in control. And the disciples flee, but your Jesus saves. And I want to remind you of the backdrop that Pastor John led us through last week, the prayer at Gethsemane, where Jesus, in such stress and anguish, as he's anticipating the hell he is about to experience for on our behalf, he is literally sweating blood out of that deep stress and turmoil, and yet he emerges saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. Prayed up, full of the Holy Spirit, he is resolved. And if our Lord Jesus needs to pray, how much more do you and I? All right, so first point, Judas betrays, but your Ju Jesus is not surprised. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and again, think about the shock of the other 11 disciples. They still haven't gotten it. They thought that Judas went off to buy something else for dinner. Where's Judas? Maybe he was giving money, alms to the poor, because he had the money back. But Jesus is not surprised. Judas comes with this great crowd with swords and clubs. Who knows if they were the same people who were heralding Jesus on Palm Sunday, waiting for just saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or maybe they're just the zealots. Maybe they're the other political group. Maybe they're in line with the Sadducees. Who knows? And the betrayer gave them a sign. And what a despicable sign. Something meant for affection. Something that is meant to be intimate and close. Used as a signal of betrayal. I don't want to spend too long on Judas because this passage is all about Jesus. But he stands as a reminder that apart from Jesus... We are all children of wrath. Apart from Jesus, we are each of us a betrayer, choosing our way rather than God's perfect way and loving ourselves instead of our loving God. But as Pastor John said in the Scripture reading, all this, Jesus says all this twice, was written in Scripture and is being fulfilled. You know, Scripture like Psalms 41.9 even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. The Savior, the Messiah, anticipating the betrayal and abandonment of even his beloved disciples. But none of this was a surprise to Jesus. As early as John 6, verse 66 and 67, to 71, 
So that's two years ago at the end when G- of his public, I mean, not his public ministry, but at the end of that first year when he had crowds following him in Galilee, remember? And then he said, I am the bread of life. And then everyone said, oh, you, you've gone too far, Jesus. That sounds a little strange. We're walking. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Peter nails it. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Way to go, Peter. And Jesus answered, did I not choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. And if Jesus knew that two years before, let's be real, he knew him when, knew that about him when he chose him to be his disciple. He knew him from before the foundations of the world because Jesus is God. And yet he still chose him, not as a stalking horse, not as a way to just set him up, I'm going to mess with Judas so bad. The other disciples had no clue it was Judas. That's how much Jesus loved Judas and treated him the same as all the others. His love for Judas was indistinguishable for the love for the other disciples. And in fact, when he says in Luke twenty-two forty-seven, 47, said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, this passage here that I, that I read in our passage in Matthew is really hard to translate. After greetings, Rabbi, he's not even calling Kurios Lord anymore because Jesus is no longer Lord to Judas. But Jesus replies, friend, do what you came to do. Commentators are just uh, debating what this, this one means. Is it, you know, and it's not a close friend. That's a different word, filio, all right? That's the a good friend, a dear friend. This is just friend, like dude. So is it, I mean, he wasn't surprised. He said, dude, what have you come to do? Or is, uh, so it wasn't that. Maybe it's, dude, is this what you've come to do? All right, so the incredulity. Or, dude, so what are you thinking? All right, just, are you going to do it? Or just a matter of fact, do it, just do it. Or with all the love that he showed Judas, one commentator says, could it be this last plaintive Judas? Do you know what you're doing? You know, we point out that there are only two kinds of people in the end. C.S. Lewis says, those who say to the Lord, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And yet still, we see John 3 is true, that God does not want that any should perish. So, you know, in reading this uh, and preparing for this sermon, I was reading Psalm 2 over and over again, and I can't even go into all the comparisons, but I printed it out in the entire, the entire Psalm 2 in this. So I would like you to study Psalm 2 and this passage and compare and see all the ways that this passage today fulfills Psalm 2 in ways I've never seen before. But I just want to point out a few things. We see here that the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, but God in heaven scoffs. 
Jesus is not surprised. And we move into the fact that, well, the mob even arrests him, point two, but your Jesus is in control. All right, with their clubs and their swords, the mob is there. But I want to paint the picture here. All right, if we take a harmony of the Gospels and share a little bit of what each of them said, a fuller picture is developed. In John chapter 18, verses 4 to 6, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, right, not surprised, came forward and said to them, the Romans, remember, the Roman guards are needed to arrest the Jewish uh, the Jewish authority could not arrest anyone. They were not the law. And so the Roman authorities were both the military and the law enforcement. That's why they need Pilate later. So it's the Romans there to arrest Jesus. And so Jesus goes before them and he asks, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Ego emi, which is I am, the name of God in the Old Testament. God, when Moses asked the question, whom shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. This is his name, Yahweh. And so Jesus once again saying who he is in emphatic, no uncertain terms. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, we can ask Mark Wachter here, you know, is this correct police tactic when you go up to arrest someone to, after he identifies himself, to go back and fall down? I will probably say that no effective arrest in the history of the world has happened in that manner. But this is Jesus, and he was in control. If they were going to arrest him, it was because he was allowing them, ordaining that they arrest him. He's in control. And then this episode, they came up, laid hands on him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus, we find out from someone else, all right, another one of the gospel writers, it was Peter. Matthew doesn't say. Maybe he's being nice. But someone outs him and says, it was Peter. Peter did it. In fact, Luke says, Lord, another disciple said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? But then Peter goes and just does it. And James Boyce says in this response, in Peter's response particularly, we see both magnificence and patheticness. Where is the magnificence? You know, the disciples went to Jerusalem. Do you remember this line? They, Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and they said, you're going to die there. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to die there. And then the disciples said, let us go that we might die with him. And you want friends like that, right? I remember when I was going off to basic training, one of my friends from a church told me as I was getting on the plane, Martin, if we don't see each other for the next 30 years, but something happens where if I could die for you, you would live, I would die for you. Ah, oh, man, we were so dramatic. But I still remember that, and I love him for it. All right? And Peter, in such love for a Savior, with no thought for his own life, because the Roman guards are there, and it's two of them with swords. What did he think he was, was going to happen? Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. 
There's something magnificent about it. But even more than that, it's pathetic. Because what does Jesus say? Is this the kingdom, kind of kingdom that I've come to usher in? Is this how I have come to bring that kingdom in? No. Have you learned nothing? Have you heard nothing? Jesus is not calling to pacifism here. He is saying that his kingdom is not brought in a military fashion. Plus, I just have to say this as a person trained in war. All right, so Peter was obviously going for a kill shot, a head shot here, right, with a sword. Stupid. Skulls are hard. Swords don't like skulls. All right? And then he goes, and then he does this big, I mean, he's probably going to get one good shot in. So he goes after the unarmed guy, so that's courageous. All right? And then he gets an ear. And just an ear, because if he got more than an ear, then Jesus would have had to put the ear back on and heal the clavicle or, you know, put the carotid back together. But no, he gets the ear. Pathetic. All right? But... It's also dangerous because Jesus came to do this. These guys rushing in like this, they could all get slaughtered, and that's not the plan. It's kind of like you're at a bar. I, didn't, I haven't done bars in my life very, very often, and you're in a fight. I haven't done any of those either. All right? I mean, fights, but not bar fights. All right? And you know, just say like someone insults you. And you're about to respond saying, all right, I don't need this. But then your friend jumps in and says, you can't save them from my friend. And then a fight starts. And then it gets, like, just really ugly. And then someone dies. All right? So that's felony manslaughter, right? You and your friend are going to jail. Sitting in prison with your friend, you would not be going to him saying, thanks for having my back. No. You're like, no, dude, you screwed us both. And Peter and the disciples had this opportunity to screw everything up, but Jesus says no and stops everything, even reverses the damage done. This is how in control he is. He's even in control, not just of biology and everything else, but over matter and creation because that's who he is. He is God. He says no more of this, touched his ear, healed him, put your sword back, and now, what happens if you were the Roman guards? What would you do? Even just forgetting the fact that Malchus's, Jesus put Malchus's ear back on, so no harm, no foul, right? No, that was assault with a deadly weapon. There wasn't just Jesus who was being arrested for being a rebel. There were all these other guys who have just proven themselves to be capable of violence. You don't just go after Luke Skywalker. You get Han Solo, Leia, and Chewbacca, especially Chewbacca. And Jesus says no. It's almost like he's training them on how to arrest him because there's no other way unless he allows it. God is sovereign. Jesus was in control. And that is such comfort to us. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. If there's one single molecule of this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. 
If God is not sovereign in all things, how can we be certain that he can keep his promises? But he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion with 6,000 elite crack Roman soldiers. And so if we do the math, that's 72,000 angels, which is simply to say countless, countless angels. Plus, if one, what's one angel worth? I mean, one angel is probably worth every soldier, every fighting man that's ever existed, Right? And there's uncounted numbers. And Jesus says, I could, in a word, call for them and the Father would send them. But he says, then how should the scriptures be fulfilled? And that's what he's there for. He even rebukes the crowd saying, wasn't I in your midst? Wasn't I teaching in the courts? And you come to me like I'm a robber in need of all of this? And maybe some left thinking, what are we doing? But Jesus is in control. And Jesus says, says this in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear those notes of thy will be done? Yet not my will, but yours. And so, what does Jesus do with all of this control? Clearly, he is the maestro. He is the orchestrator of all of this. Nothing is happening apart from his control. So what does he do with all of that? Last point, the disciples flee, but your Jesus saves. Again, he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And certainly, we see that in Zechariah 13, 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this sounds like a really depressing note to end on certainly how I looked at it, and then you go into just the beatings and the trial to the cross. But this is actually a triumphant statement here. Then all the disciples left him and fled. One, you expected that. No longer ready to foolishly give their lives away, they were in fear for their lives. That was expected. But they all lived. All 11 of them got away. There is comfort in this sad running away. The disciples fleeing with, fled with their lives when the Romans should have captured or killed them on the spot. And them fleeing, their lives being spared, was a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory, saving us from our sin and death. And A.W. Tozer certainly looks at it with comfort, saying that while it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who hasn't once surrendered his authority. And honestly, we shouldn't be surprised, right? Jesus' very name means God saves. I need the Jesus who saves. You need the Jesus who saves. 
And Jesus, in this small little way, he shows how he is worthy of our trust. What does he say in his high priestly prayer in John 17? He's praying to the Father, saying, his Father saying, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And even that's another fulfillment of Psalm 2, where the Bible says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And Jesus tells the Romans, Leave them alone, my disciples. They are mine. They are not yours to have. You know, actually, it gets even more precious than that. Luke 22, 31. Jesus tells to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And the accuser deserves all of us apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus even anticipated all of this. Jesus anticipated Peter's did not once screwing up there with the whole sword thing, but then rejecting him three times. And Jesus anticipates even more. He knows he's going to say, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And now that you're certain, go and feed my lambs. Jesus will even take this failure and make something beautiful of it. You know, Robert Murray McShane, we've, we've heard his name a couple times recently, right? He has this quote, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Do you know that's Jesus' job right now? Seated on the right hand of the throne of his Father? He is ruling. He is reigning. And the work that he is doing is he is interceding for us in prayer. Just And Peter, again, stands in for us as he prayed for Peter, and Peter was saved. He prays for us. And so, as we see the absolute control of our Savior, our Lord. How do we, what's that word that Pastor John taught us? How do we operationalize the truth that God is in control? How do we make that understanding of God's sovereignty, of comfort, a reality to us? Well, John also taught me that God preserves this world as a theater for redemption, a theater for redemption. Right? That all of this suffering is real. We don't minimize any of it. It is happening, whether it's in sickness or infection or unrest or political or just oppressive tyrants. All of it is terrible. And yet, just like Judas's betrayal, it is only a backdrop for the God who is still in control, redeeming his people, saving them from their sins, and making them into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Like Psalm 2 says, our God laughs. 
Those nations are doing the very things that will grow the church. All that persecution, all that suffering, jokes on them. If they studied their history, the way that they would try to just kill off the church is by leaving it alone, letting it fester in abundance, in excess, and focused on unnecessary things, like Europe and America maybe. But the suffering, let's pray for them, but let's also pray for revival. And John said, this is our gift to our friends and our family, to Long Island. This is who we are, the ability to have this reformed biblical worldview, to not say the empty platitudes, don't worry, God is in control, it'll get better. What if it doesn't? What if this situation doesn't get better? Where is our hope? It is in the God who is in control and has exercised that control. What is, how does Romans 8, 28 put it? God works all things together for the good who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to save us from our sins and make us into the image of Jesus. So what does this truth mean in our suffering? I know your pain. I talk with you and pray for you. I know that I know you know mine. We have financial struggles, physical pain and suffering, confusion. But it means that we can be patient and see things differently. As Stephen Curtis Chapman did when he wrote this song, Our God is in Control. When his older son sadly killed his youngest daughter in a tragic car accident. And he wrote, this is not where we planned to be when we started this journey. But this is where we are, and our God is in control. Though this first taste is bitter, there will be sweetness forever when we finally taste and see that our God is in control. And like the book of Revelation, we will sing, holy, holy, holy is our God. And we'll finally really understand what that means. And so we wait for that day. I don't know how long I've gone, but I want to go just, I want to just share this one last story. I was trying to tie this in and think, what, how, do we, how do we operationalize this? How do we understand that God's sovereignty is precious comfort to us? And Kim gave me this story. In fact, she wrote and gave this as a, as a talk recently. So these are Kim's words. When I was in college, I heard a sermon by Tim Keller that included this story, children's story, and I've come back to this story throughout my life. It is George MacDonald's story. He was C.S. Lewis's mentor. The Princess and the Goblin. Have you ever read it? It's about an eight-year-old girl, Irene. John Morkins read it. Irene was told to follow her thread even when it took her through scary places, places she did not want to go, places where she would suffer, places that revealed doubt in the one who told her to keep following her thread. But Irene trusted, and that trust looked so different throughout her journey. Sometimes it was mingled with doubt and outright disbelief. Sometimes it had a strong resolve. But even when there was this, even the slightest bit of trust to even just hold the thread in her hands, that was faith. So let me read this to you. This is Tim Keller's following the thread. In the story, Irene has a fairy god, uh, grandmother who gives her a ring. 
She tells Irene there's a string tied to the ring, and it's attached to a ball of thread, which the grandmother holds. But I can't see a string, says Irene. No, but the thread is too fine for you to see it. You can only feel it. But listen, says the grandmother. If you ever find yourself in any danger, take off your ring, put it under your pillow, then lay your finger on the thread and follow the thread wherever it leads you. A few days later, Irene is in bed and goblins get into the house. She hears them snarling out in the hallway, so she takes off her ring, puts it under the pillow, and places her finger on the thread. She expects it will take her to safety, but it takes her outside, and she realizes that it's taking her right toward the cave where the goblins live. Inside the cave, the thread leads her right up to a large pile of stones, a dead end. The the thought struck her if she followed the thread backwards, she could get out, but the instant she tried, she couldn't feel it anymore. The thread only worked forward. Irene bursts into tears, but she realizes that the only way to follow the thread is to tear down the wall of stones. She begins tearing it down stone by stone. Though her fingers are soon bleeding, she pulls and pulls. Suddenly, she hears a voice. It's her friend, Curdy, who's been trapped in the goblin's cave. Curdy is astounded and asks, however did you come here? Irene replies that her grandmother sent her, and I think I've found out why. And after Irene has removed enough rocks to make an opening, Curdy starts to climb up out of the cave. But Irene keeps going deeper into the cave. Curdy objects. That's not the way out. That's where the goblins live. I know that, says Irene. But this is the way my thread goes. And I must follow it. And in the end, the thread proves trustworthy because her grandmother is trustworthy. Our God is trustworthy. He was ever in control. And he used his great might and power and the power of the cross of our Savior to rescue us from sin and death. And so we're left with two options. You know, the word kiss appears multiple times in the Bible, also in Psalm 2. We have two choices. We have the kiss of the betrayer, and we can be like Judas, or we can sing this psalm, 2 verse 12, saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, but we will not perish because we are in him. We are kissing him out of gladness and joy because he is worthy of our worship and trust. And so it concludes, kiss the son, for blessed are all who take refuge in him. Some of you today are holding back, not feeling ready. Why are you holding back? I invite you today to ask Jesus Christ to hold you, for you to find that dread and thread and find that He is worthy of your trust because He is in control and find life in His sovereign hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for just our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we marvel that in this time where From human perspective, it seems that you didn't have any control whatsoever, and yet every step of the way, 
And we'll see. In your silence, you were in control. In your responses, you were in control. In the words you said on the cross, you were in control. In the saving of your disciples, you were in control. And saving us, you were always in control. And worthy to be praised. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Oh, help us to sing this song but then to carry that song in our hearts, to behold, behold you who deserves to be beheld. So we fix our eyes on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please rise and let us sing in our hearts and all together.